In my sense that what we're seeing with the regional banks now is a bit more akin to what we saw during the SNL crisis. In other words, you have all these problems, but they're not bad enough to induce a recession quickly. Just need to wait for things to escalate to a point where the economy is so weak that it falls into recession. Again, that sort of a statement suggesting the recession will come, but it could come later rather than earlier. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting, as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks for the introduction, Niels. Uh, today, I'm delighted to be joined by Peter Berzin of Bank Credit Analyst. Peter is currently BCA Research's Chief Global Strategist and Research Director since joining BCA Research in 2010, he has served as the managing editor of the Bank Credit Analyst. Prior to joining BCA Research, Peter worked as a senior global economist with Goldman Sachs. And prior to that, he spent time in the research department of the International Monetary Fund. Peter, great to see you. How, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Well, I, I gave you a, a bit of a, an intro there about your background, but it'd be great to hear from your own perspective how you got interested in the markets and investing and how you end up working at uh, BCA Research. Yeah, I mean, I've always been fascinated by economics. I did my undergraduate and my graduate degrees in economics. And when I finished school, I had the opportunity to work at the International Monetary Fund. Did that for seven years. Had a great experience, worked in the Asia department, got involved in program negotiations with different countries, worked in the research department on the World Economic Outlook, the IMF's flagship uh, publication. Uh, and during that time, you know, I was also very interested in the markets, did a lot of did a lot of trading and just on my own accounts, even wrote a blog about my trading uh, experience. I think people can still find it online. Uh, just Google uh, stock coach at blogspot.com, still still there. I haven't updated it in many, many years. Uh, but I was really fascinated by financial markets. And then an opportunity came up to go to New York, work at Goldman. And I did that for three years. Really enjoyed it as well. But I've always wanted just to have a lot of intellectual freedom. And when the opportunity to work at BCA came up, I took it because BCA is the world's biggest independent macro research shop. And I had the privilege initially of working on the Bank Credit Analyst, which is BCA's flag, flagship publication. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. Very good. And uh, I mean, BCA has a long history in the markets. Uh, just can you tell us a little bit about how long the business has been in existence and uh, kind of your investment and research uh, approach? Well, we've been around since 1949. It began just as a very small one-man research shop publishing a newsletter. And then over the years, grew into a company that covered every asset class, every region, uh, every time horizon, uh, 
providing tactical views in the markets, uh, structural, long-term, thematic views. And what we really try to do at BCA is not just talk about economics, but talk about economics in a way that's relevant for investors. So all of our reports always have some investment conclusions. Great. Now that we've discussed what the economy is going to do, tell me how to make money off that. And we try to do that for our clients. Very good. And um, I know you've had a, a, an upbeat assessment of, of the economy relative to maybe the, the, the consensus and have been upbeat on the equity market, which has been the right view. And I think uh, I read a recent report where you kind of sub- summarized the view as this time is longer as opposed to this time is different. So maybe you could give us a sense on, on, on the current sense of, uh, of the US economy. Yeah, I mean, now, economists talk about long and variable lags, uh, but sometimes investors forget just how long those lags uh, can be. I mean, the Fed only started raising rates uh, last year. They're not even finished raising rates. They, you wouldn't really expect uh, higher rates to impact the economy immediately. And in fact, they have not. Uh, indeed, if you look at, say, the average mortgage rate that homeowners are paying, it's still lower than where it was in 2019. You know, how, how did that come to be? Well, a lot of homeowners financed their, refinanced their mortgages during the pandemic. Uh, most mortgages are 30-year fixed. Only about 5 to 10% of uh, homes are sold every, every year. And so household debt, which is dominated by mortgage debt, was low going into... Uh, this Fed tightening cycle. And because of the prevalence of fixed rate mortgages, we just have to wait before the impact of higher rates really make their way through to the economy. It's it's interesting. Uh, you know, it, it, economists often find it hard to forecast re- re- recessions, you know. Uh, and last year, you had the opposite view that it was the prevailing view that uh, uh, we were going to have recession this year. And, and then I saw in your report, you were making the point, well, recession will probably come when people least expect it. So, I mean, wh- why do you have that dynamic that these things are, are so hard to forecast that as soon as everybody says that recession is likely, it's a pretty good bet that it probably isn't? Yeah, I think that's kind of the irony. I mean, because so many people have been expecting a recession, long-term bond yields are not terribly high. I mean, they're high by the standards of where they were a few years ago, but relative to where they were a decade or two ago, they're not especially elevated. The yield curve is incredibly inverted. And it's those longer-term bond yields that actually matter the most for the economy. So ironically, you almost need more confidence that the economy will avert a recession to lift those yields to a level that actually could be restrictive for the, for the, uh, for, for the economy. Yeah. And is that the key reason why we've had those yields? As you say, they haven't really gone up that much, particularly given, you know, we've we've started quantitative tightening as well um, and yields overseas. Okay, maybe not in Japan, but certainly in Europe have gone up a decent amount. Um, you know, uh, it's maybe, okay, maybe not quite as, well, maybe it is as, as surprising as the, 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 the conundrum that Greenspan faced, but is, is there something different that, that's constraining, that's keeping yields in check at the moment? Is it that kind of a pervasive expectation of recession? I think that's the main factor. Uh, you know, an inverted yield curve isn't necessarily a recession indicator. All it really says is that the Fed is going to cut rates. But usually the market thinks the Fed will cut rates because the economy is going to weaken by enough to require uh, rate cuts. And that normally only happens during recessions. So, you know, arguably monetary policy is somewhat restrictive now in the sense that job openings are declining. That's kind of telling you that labor demand is coming down. But there's still a long way to go to get to a point where recession is likely. So if you look at job openings, Right now in the U.S., there's about 1.7 job openings for every unemployed worker. It should be closer to like one job opening, one job opening per unemployed worker. Until you get that number down, most people who lose their jobs are just going to walk across the street 
and find new work. And so unemployment isn't going to rise. If unemployment doesn't rise, you can't have a recession. So again, a recession will occur, but it's just going to happen later than most people are anticipating. Okay. So the other big kind of driver of markets has obviously been inflation. And, uh, you know, again, you've had different views on this. And and I know your view has been that inflation would come down. Uh, and, you know, we've had, I suppose, what people have been looking for, the immaculate disinflation, you could say, in, in the sense that, we, yeah, you know, if we had gone back six months, you had that debate, you know, maybe Larry Summers on one side saying that you'd have to see a significant rise in unemployment to get inflation down. So maybe give us a sense on on. on where you see inflation heading, why you thought inflation would come down without that rise in unemployment, and, and, and how does it look, you know, looking, looking ahead? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've written quite a lot about over the last few years is this idea that the so-called Phillips curve, which is just the relationship between inflation and unemployment, is nonlinear. And in fact, it's sort of kinked when you get down to very low levels of unemployment. What that means in practice is that once the economy gets overheated, the aggregate supply curve gets really, really steep, which means that initially as demand comes down, sort of just sliding down that steep portion of the supply curve, you get a lot of disinflation, but initially you don't get much in the way of higher unemployment. And that's sort of what we've seen over the last year or so, this this kind of benign disinflation. And I suspect that can continue. If you look at the forward-looking indicators for inflation, they're fairly tame. So the Fed likes to take the inflation numbers and break them up into three categories, core goods, shelter, and services excluding shelter. Goods prices are not going up anymore. The New York Fed's uh, supply chain pressure index has gone from a record high till record low, so no issues there. On the shelter side, we know that the best leading indicator for shelter inflation is asking rents. Like, what are landlords asking for the properties that they're putting onto the market? And we have data from Zillow, CoreLogic, Apartment List, and that data very clearly shows that asking rents aren't going up anymore because they lead shelter inflation. That says shelter inflation is going to come down. And then finally, on the services side, wage growth is the key driver of services inflation. And wage growth is coming down. Average hourly earnings on a year-over-year basis have decelerated from around 7% to about 5%. If you look at like leisure and hospitality, uh, there the deceleration in wage growth has been extremely uh, significant. So all of that is telling you that services inflation will fall and because shelter inflation is falling, because goods inflation is very low, then overall inflation probably still has further to decline. Okay. And it's an interesting idea, this kind of kinked Phillips curve that you talked about. And, you know, the Phillips curve itself is a, is a much debated topic. Um, you know, for, for, for you were to go back a few years, to, there was this view of a very flat Phillips curve. I mean, some people just dispute the whole idea of a Phillips curve. But I think the, the 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 view was it was a flat Phillips curve, and that was part of the Fed narrative around running the economy hot, because you you could do that. Um, obviously, if you have this kind of nonlinear or kinked uh, Phillips curve at, at very low levels of unemployment, that inflation picks up quite quite quickly. Um, I mean, these are all quite theoretical concepts. People who try and estimate the slope of the Phillips curve come up with all manner of numbers. How would you have confidence in that framework and that give you, you know, that that is a good reflection of reality to, to give you the conviction of saying, well, this is what we think is going to happen to inflation and, 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 and base your investment strategy on it? Well, I think p- partly it's a question of just uh, intuition and also just a question of what the data says. So on the intuitive side, it's very easy to understand why the Phillips curve is nonlinear. Like when unemployment is like really high, it starts to fall, there's still going to be a lot of workers eager to find a job. So firms don't have to raise wages. But when you get down to like super low levels of the unemployment, like 3% or 4%, you know, at that point, you don't have a surplus of workers. If you're a company and you want to hire somebody, 
you got to poach them from a different firm. You have to offer a higher wage. So the idea that unemployment can fall without inflation ever rising doesn't make sense. At some point, you know that relationship has to end. And when it ends, that means that inflation needs to start to rise in order to ration demand. You can't just expand demand indefinitely. At some point, you run into these supply-side constraints. And in terms of the evidence, you know, you kind of look back at what happened to inflation in, say, the 1960s. In the first half of the decade, nothing happened to inflation. Inflation was remarkably stable. Core inflation was around 2 2.5%, even though unemployment was falling during that whole period. So the Phillips curve looked to be very, very flat. But then 1966 comes around. You've got the Great Society programs. You've got the Vietnam War starting to heat up, massive labor shortages, boom. Within the span of six months, inflation doubles. So we've seen this before, and we saw it again during the pandemic. Not one point in the first quarter of last year, the so-called jobs workers gap, this difference between labor demand and labor supply, got up to four percentage points. That was the highest on record. So labor demand exceeded supply by 4%. Not surprisingly, we got inflation. And one of the interesting themes that we got uh, through last year was, you know, you're, you're talking about your aggregate supply, aggregate demand framework. Um, if you go back to maybe Jackson Hole of last year and all of the speakers at that, a big theme was around, you know, looking ahead, aggregate supply may be more constrained because of uh, deglobalization or lower labor force participation rates, et cetera. All of that seems to have gone away. We've had lower inflation. Um, it, was that wrong, do you think? Or do you think those structural impediments are still there uh, looking forward? Uh, well, the pandemic-related supply constraints have largely gone away. So if you look at labor force participation, it's still a bit depressed for older workers. But for prime age workers, 25 to 54-year-olds, it's actually higher now than it was in 2019. So that problem has largely disappeared. As I mentioned, the issues around the global supply chain, that's been largely resolved, although there are still component shortages in some some areas, but that problem is quickly receding. The problem is more on the structural side. If you look at US productivity growth, it's actually been very weak since about 2005. In fact, close to where it was in the 1970s. So unless structurally productivity growth accelerates, uh, then we're going to kind of continue to face fairly mediocre prospects for aggregate supply growth going forward. Now, maybe AI is the ticket that boosts productivity growth. I certainly hope that that's the case. And in fact, the work that I've done suggests that it's very likely to be extremely productivity enhancing. But that could be a story more for and at the end of this decade, the 2030s, then the next, say, 18 months. And yeah, I mean, it, that seems to be the consensus. Obviously, McKinsey had a report out about this uh, saying significant gains. I think $4 trillion per annum was the number they came up with. Uh, they said a lot of those gains would probably be between 2030 and 2050, I, I think. But but again, I think their estimate of the boost of productivity was anywhere between 0.1 and 0.6% per annum. So it seems like something potentially very positive, but but something with a kind of a wide range in terms of how significant it might be and, and a big kind of range in terms of how quickly we might uh, see the benefit. Of it. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, I think kind of the uh, confidence band there is very, very wide. And I think one issue that we don't really have a good handle on is what happens when we go from like standard AI, like, you know, chat GPT, to something that might be more like AGI, artificial general intelligence, where you have actually AI that can do pretty well everything uh, that a human can do in terms of intellectual tasks. And once we get there, you're going to have basically super intelligence that can make itself even more intelligent. And so you could have what some people are calling kind of a technological singularity, a technological explosion akin to perhaps what we saw in the agricultural revolution or in the industrial revolution. Like both of those revolutions saw growth increase 40-fold relative to the previous epoch. So right now, 
kind of trend growth of maybe two and a half percent. We're talking about like hundred percent growth now, if that happens. So those McKinsey estimates could actually be too conservative. But again, the question is, you know, when does this happen? Is it a story for the next couple of years? Probably not. Is that a story for the next 10 to 20 years? Possibly. I think that's sort of the interesting thing. This could actually happen within our lifetimes. And obviously, that's been an, an important driver of markets in the last number of months, uh, optimism around AI. Um, I mean, when you look at it from a market perspective, obviously, you have different dimensions to the AI boom. Obviously, what you're talking about in terms of possible impact and productivity, but then also, I guess, investors in the in the more immediate term are playing, you know, where, where, you know where, what it might translate into in terms of earnings, growth, et cetera. So, I mean, how do you take some a big picture topic like that and think about, you know, what, tactically, how, how should investors think about that? Well, I think we can probably draw some lessons from the uh, dot-com boom. So productivity growth accelerated in the mid-1990s. And then, as I mentioned, sort of fell back to more ho-hum levels around 2005. Now, interestingly, around 2005, it's exactly when companies figured out how to monetize <laughs> the internet. So the productivity gains actually came before uh, the profits. And when they figured out how to make money off it, usually it was sort of by exploiting uh, natural monopoly effects. Like, you know, these network effects people use Facebook because others use Facebook. Companies really figured out how to exploit that. So I think with AI, we could see a lot of hype. We could even see productivity gains before companies start to really make money off. In fact, it actually might be quite difficult to make money off AI. So think about like Google, for example. Suppose Google replaces its search engine with like a really powerful chatbot so that if I wanted to go from, say, Montreal to Houston, rather than you know typing some search words into the search bar, I could just ask Google, okay, how should I go to my destination? What's the cheapest flight that'll take me there on the day that I want to travel? Well, if the chatbot is honest and accurate, it'll just tell me what the cheapest flight is. And so the question is, how does Google actually make money off that? The company that offers the cheapest flight has no incentive to advertise because the chatbot, if it's honest and ethical, is going to tell me the right answer anyway. Uh, so the, the irony here is that kind of Google makes money because its search engine is good, but not great. You still have to do that last leg of search on yourself to click on a bunch of links. If Google takes that out of the equation, how does it monetize it, right? Maybe they figure out a way, but history suggests that it could take a few years before before they get there. Okay. So, so that would, I mean, that would, would say maybe there's a bit too much optimism around AI in relation to the tech companies, but still there's, the, do you think, the, and then in relation to the wider economy, you'd say, well, because, the, the, you know, as you said, the confidence uh, uh, band around the timing and the magnitude is too great. And so would you say that's not something that that is a kind of a support for, say, you know, Banking stocks should, in theory, benefit from uh, you know gains related to AI, but but probably not being influenced by that at the moment. Is that fair to say? Well, I think you know there's sort of two channels. One, there's just kind of the uh, direct channel of what's happening to companies such as Nvidia and their impact on the S and P index. But there's also an important indirect channel, like once people become really excited about these new technologies stocks go up, that generates a positive wealth effect. People feel richer because their their uh, portfolios are worth more. They spend more. And that actually has the effect of delaying a recession. And then on the business side, we're seeing you know CapEx starting to pick up. Like manufacturing construction has soared in the US over the last few quarters. A lot of that is in semiconductors. But that's adding demand to the economy. That's delaying the onset of recession. So the AI boom, even if it doesn't deliver productivity gains anytime soon, could still push up confidence by enough to keep the economy out of recession longer than what most investors have been expecting. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you touched on this boom that we've seen in uh, manufacturing construction, which has come even at a time of weakness in, in the kind of the manufacturing sector. And, you know, obviously partially that's related to uh, semiconductor, uh, but it's also 
possibly related to all of these incentives that have come from from some of the policies, chips, and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in, in in the U.S. and this new doctrine of industrial policy in in the U.S. of providing subsidies, etc. So, I mean, curious to get your thoughts. Is that something significant that that could support growth even longer, or do you think that's just uh, you know, I mean, is has that been part of the reason why the economy has withstood high rates, and could it continue to be uh, an, an important support? I think it's part of the reason, but it's not the main reason. I think a key reason why the economy has sort of withstood those higher rates is that the interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy are really lean in me. So if you look at business capex, it's been weak now for over two decades. Like US manufacturing capacity has not grown since about 2000. Core capital goods orders in real terms are 25% lower today than they were in 2000. So we've had now over two decades of underinvestment by US businesses in domestic manufacturing capacity. And now they're saying, listen, you know, maybe we need to invest more to make up for the lack of spending before. Invest more because we want to relocate some manufacturing production capacity from, say, China back stateside. And of course, also to invest in some of these new areas like AI, green energy, and so forth. And so CapEx is starting to pick up despite the fact that rates have gone up. And then on the housing side, which of course is the most interest rate sensitive sector of the economy, we've had 15 years of underbuilding. The homeowner vacancy rate is at 1%. That's a record low. The average age of US homes has risen to 31 years, the highest since 1949. And so when you have a lack of excess in interest rate sensitive sectors, you shouldn't be too surprised to higher rates don't curb spending in those sectors by very much. So maybe taking some of those themes in terms of the um, kind of in investment implications. Um, so obviously from at a high level, you, the, the view on on, on economic strength uh, and, and low inflation has translated into a, an upbeat view on on, on on equities. And you seem to think that will continue for a while. I guess, how do you balance that kind of, just that kind of top-down relationship between, okay, we're at that stage of the cycle, reasonably solid growth, should be good for equities, versus other factors such as valuations or you know things like other analysts maybe focus in on liquidity and flows and positioning. I mean, I guess that's all part of the picture, but it, it was fair to say you're, you're placing um, most emphasis on that kind of growth uh, equity relationship. Yeah, I think a lot depends on what time horizon you're focused on. So, you know, I've developed a model at BCA or macro quant model. I look at that every day. It gives a very good read on the near-term and longer-term direction of stocks. The near-term signal from that model is very, very positive. It's sensing the fact that we might get a churn in the manufacturing cycle. It's sensing the fact that housing was already stabilized. It's sensing the fact that positioning is still very, very defensive. Uh, All of those are bullish for stocks in the near term. However, the model also recognizes the fact that as we started off discussing earlier on, unemployment is very low. And it's kind of hard to keep the economy at full employment indefinitely once unemployment gets to these ultra low levels. So the near term signal from the model is bullish. The longer term 12 month single signal is actually somewhat defensive. And so I'm just waiting for this model to give me the cue to turn a little bit more cautious. Haven't gotten it yet, but maybe we'll get it within the next few months. And, and back to the point about you know valuations, um, you know. It, I guess if you were to just look at that, those <clears throat> macro factors, you know, going back a few years, um, you didn't, you, you know, part of the bullishness was around Tina. You know, there is no alternative. How does the model factor in the fact that rates are now five and a half percent? You know, for three month T bills, whatever it is, possibly going higher. So there is an alternative now, and, and obviously there are lots of alternatives uh, across the fixed income markets as well. So valuations matter a lot for the longer term direction of stocks. And the model currently says that the S&P is overvalued by about 
relative to sort of a you know discounted cash flow uh, model, which means that over like a five year horizon, returns are probably going to be fairly low, uh, below average. But those valuation factors don't have a big impact on the outlook for stocks over like a three month horizon. You really have to go beyond a year before they start to matter, which again kind of reinforces the view that the near term direction for stocks is probably higher. The longer term direction is a lot more challenging. Okay, interesting. And I mean, what 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 kind of uh, is that based on? Kind of the five year bond yield that you're you're kind of uh, taking that valuation, and what would that kind of translate to? Obviously, you're saying kind of more muted returns, but now on a on a kind of a total return perspective, what would that mean in terms of total return of stocks, U.S. stocks over that five year period? Yeah, it would probably mean a total return of about five percent or so. Not horrible. Uh, but not much better than what bonds are currently uh, yielding. So from that perspective, more conservative investors who are not really interested in the tactical picture, who I really think about the next five to 10 years, I certainly wouldn't fault them for putting more money into bonds now. Uh, tactically, I don't think it's the right step. But that's kind of a three-month view rather than a long-term view. Okay, and also then from the you know from a fixed income high yield credit perspective, um, what's your thoughts there? Given you know, I guess in the short term, if you think the the momentum in the economy is solid, presumably that the, that view is similar to the equity view in terms of potential gains. But it, it, do you see any? I, I suppose any potential challenges, and that's in in the kind of the the credit space. Uh, as uh, if we do get recession next year, yeah, I mean a lot depends on kind of how the banking system evolves. If the turmoil that we saw in March returns, which is possible, we don't know, uh, then you would kind of expect high yield spreads to widen again because they've narrowed quite a lot since uh, March. I mean, the good news is that U.S. corporates are in decent shape. You know, they're not in fantastic shape. Uh, they have taken on a lot of debt, but they've also trimmed out a lot of that debt. Uh, indeed, during the pandemic, a lot of companies refinanced their long-term debt at very low rates. And now, actually, an inverted yield curve is helping them because they've got this long-term debt, which isn't paying very much, and their cash balances are earning five uh, percent, and that's helping to flatter their uh, their uh, cash flows. So yeah, if we have a recession, then of course high yield credit is going to do very very badly. It always does. But again, my expectation is that recession will come, but probably won't come until the second half of next year. So tactically, I think being exposed to uh, corporate bonds right now is okay, but you do need to have at least one eye fixed on the exit door because the market outlook for corporate credit will sour probably by early next year. Okay. So maybe just picking up a couple of more points on that. So going back to the valuation and the kind of this kind of S&P 13% overvalued translating into maybe a 5% annualized return. So that kind of sentiment is is maybe not unusual or a few people saying that pointing to more muted returns. In some cases, it may be pointing to even more uh, muted and lower returns um, on the basis of not just the valuation in terms of the multiple, but but potential uh, profit margin uh, compression, which I guess would would will depend on a whole range of factors such as inflation and wages and costs, etc. Curious to get your thoughts on what what kind of assumptions you have on that score, looking ahead over the medium term, you know, and obviously. How that links to the macro uh, perspective, you know, uh, you've seen it, wage growth has been coming down, but would you be concerned that we could see kind of on a more sustained basis higher wage growth than we've seen in recent years, given the kind of um, more of a shift towards labour power uh, of late? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable uh, expectation. In fact, real wages in level terms are still about 3% below where they ought to be based on the pre-pandemic trend. 
And that means a couple of things. One, it means that even if inflation gets back to the Fed's target, nominal wage growth may not need to fall quite as much as it normally would because you got to keep real wages higher than normal just to bring them up, bring them back up to their pre-pandemic trend. That's sort of the first point. And the second point related to that is that if real wages are rising rather than falling as they were last year when inflation was so high, then that's going to potentially uh, weigh on corporate profit margins. Now, margins have come down. If you look at US profit margins, they're basically back to where they were in 2019, but they were quite high in 2019. And if we have a recession, it's quite reasonable to expect margins to fall further. And the model tries to take that into account to some extent, but it's really hard to know because the increase in margins that we've seen over the last few decades, a lot of that has been driven by tech. You know, the weight of tech within the S&P has increased. Tech company profits typically are higher than normal. So how much of that is cyclical? How much of that is structural? That's not obvious. Mm. Okay. And and then the second point to pick up on something you alluded to earlier, you kind of mentioned in relation to credit and may, may be influenced by you know, how things uh, pan out in the banking sector. And obviously there was a wobble in the banking sector in March and you know a, a series of uh, um, closures and acquisitions and things seem to have stabilized since then. And I guess, you know, a, 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 maybe a crude analysis of of tightening cycles historically might be, well, when you get higher rates, inevitably something breaks or and at some point things seem to be okay for a long time and then you hit the kind of the Minsky moment. I mean, when you survey the landscape, do you see that risk in any shape or form, you know, in terms of the, the commercial real estate market or flows into the private markets or any any obvious area where you're looking at, at potential weaknesses in the system but that could give you a more pessimistic view? Or do you think, no, the, the, on the, the, because of the um, the, the, the better uh, balance sheets at the, at the household and corporate sector, that that's less of a risk this time around? Well, I think you have to be worried. I mean, we need to be humble in this field and we don't know what's going to come out of the woodwork. I certainly didn't expect these issues around regional banks in March. Uh, I think most people didn't I either. So who knows what's out there? Uh, where is the bottom for commercial real estate? It just seems like you just can't give away office towers anymore. Nobody wants to buy them. So maybe there's further downside there. Probably is further downside there. Like I think just a critical question is whether these issues around the banks, the regional banks, commercial real estate, whether they're more akin to the sort of stuff that we saw in 2008, where you had this fast burn crisis that erupted and dragged the whole economy down with it, or whether it's more akin to what we saw, say, in the savings and loan period beginning in the mid to late 1980s, which festered for like three, four years before it culminated in a recession in 1991. Now, my sense that what we're seeing with the regional banks now is a bit more akin to what we saw during the SNL crisis. In other words, you have all these problems, but they're not bad enough to induce a recession quickly. Just need to wait for things to escalate to a point where the economy is so weak that it falls into recession. Again, that's sort of a statement suggesting the recession will come, but it could come later rather than earlier. Okay. And I mean, from a timing perspective, obviously you're, you have a kind of a broad framework, but in terms of kind of sometime next year. But if you were to be looking at certain variables that will say, okay, now we're actually seeing science that it's coming through, it touched on the, the kind of the job applicant ratio, uh, I think as one key uh, uh, measure or variable to watch. Anything else that you would say, okay, these are the two, two to three key variables you're going to be monitoring to tell you, okay, now we're actually moving into a stage where it looks like recession is looking more likely in the near term. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I try to do with my macro modeling is to have a lot of kind of leading indicators and just look at a whole basket of them rather than focusing on one or one or two. So most of those leading indicators are not saying recession is imminent, but some of them are. You know, the fact that the yield curve has inverted, historically, that is a leading indicator for a recession. Now, often a yield curve inverts like 18 months before recession starts. 
So maybe we shouldn't be expecting recession imminently, even with this inverted yield curve. But other data, I think, is a little bit more reassuring. So we're not really seeing a massive surge in initial unemployment claims. We're not seeing core capital goods orders collapse. If anything, they seem to be stabilizing right now. Even the kind of new orders component of the ISM, uh, that actually ticked up in the last reading. In fact, globally, if you look at the IS, if you look at the uh, uh, PMI, new orders minus inventories component, that bottomed earlier this year. That's kind of a good leading indicator for where the overall manufacturing PMIs are likely to go. So I'm looking at all these variables, and right now they're still saying, you know, stick with a positive view on stocks, but they can change. And if they change, my view will change with them. Okay. And obviously, our conversation so far has been quite US-centric. But I mean, if you look outside the US, how does that fit into your analysis and, and, and your outlook? Obviously, a lot of people anticipated a much stronger reopening from China. It hasn't come through. And there seems to be a suggestion of maybe structurally weaker growth there. Europe, obviously, there's a lot of pessimism in Europe at the start of the year, or late last year, around uh, energy prices, etc. But, you know, by and large, dodged a bullet on that. But at the same time, more recent data now are starting to show signs of weakness. You know, what, what's your sense there? Do you see it broadly following the US trajectory in terms of Europe? And obviously, from a structural perspective, um, that Chinese scenario of, of a fairly weak reopening, how is that influencing your thinking? Yeah, I think in China, there's kind of a couple of things that are weighing on the economy. One, we've been in kind of in the midst of this shift in spending globally from goods to services. People, of course, splurged on goods during the pandemic, and that created an air pocket in demand for goods once economies began to open up again and people started going out more often. And because China is such a big manufacturer and exporter of goods, that's obviously hurt their uh, economy. As I said, that problem will probably go away over the next few quarters. If you look at spending on goods versus services in the US, it's already kind of normalized. So that issue, I think, will probably abate. And that will also help Europe, which is a big center for global manufacturing, especially countries such as uh, Germany. The one thing that China has working against it is the housing market. Uh, the housing market in China really does look as though it's in the early phases of what's likely to be a very long, difficult, challenging bear market, probably similar to what Japan experienced in the early 1990s. So in so many respects, the Chinese housing market looks like the Japanese market. Too much supply, at least 10% of homes in China are completely vacant compared to 1% in the US. Rental yields, which are incredibly low in China. China has some of the most expensive real estate in the world. Highly levered developers. Like Earlier on this year, there was a bit of a rally in Chinese developer bonds, but that's ended. Chinese developer bonds are now trading 30 cents to the dollar again. And then on top of all that, you've got the demographics, right, which are as bad, if not worse, in China than they are in Japan. And if household formation is falling, as it will, based on the demographic estimates, that means all this supply of homes just has nowhere to go, and that's going to push down construction. So that's kind of the bad news. Uh, the good news is that, A, the government is kind of aware of all this, so, so they're trying to support the economy to some extent. And the other kind of piece of good news, which is a little bit ironic, is that maybe we don't really want China to do exceptionally well at a time when inflation is still a big concern. Right now, producer prices in China are falling. They've declined 3% year over year. China is exporting deflation to the rest of the world. When people are concerned that the Fed might not be able to stop raising rates because inflation stays too high, having some Chinese disinflation is not the worst thing imaginable. So from that perspective, I think if China kind of achieves middling growth this year, that might be just what the doctor ordered for the rest of the global economy. Great. So that might be, I mean, a good segue into a couple of other things and from an, an investment perspective. One, maybe currency. So obviously, 
we've had this weakness in China and uh, a weakening trend in the renminbi of late. Uh, obviously, it kind of stabilized a little bit the last few days. But I mean, is that part of the policy response, do you think, in China? And do you think, you know, there's the potential of as something, you know, as a structural move higher there in in the sense that if 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 this US recession isn't for another kind of six, nine months and US rates stay at, at a high level, um, could we see much higher rates for the dollar versus renminbi, which in turn might influence the rest of Asia, or is that and, and could that be kind of a, a, a disrupting force in the markets? Potentially. I mean it depends on how quickly the uh, Chinese currency weakens. It's been weakening uh, on a trade-weighted basis. The dollar has been weakening as well. So if the RMB weakens relative to the dollar, you know that it's really weakening against most other currencies too. Uh, Now, the authorities need to be a little bit careful. Uh, As we saw in the past, if the currency weakens a lot, that can sort of exacerbate capital flight. The capital account has become much tighter in China, but nevertheless, the government does not want a disruptive move in the uh, currency. My guess is that if the dollar kind of continues to weaken, and it is my expectation, the dollar will weaken on a trade-weighted basis, then that will sort of just drag the RMB down uh, with it. Uh, China will become a little bit more competitive relative to its neighbors, which is what it wants at a time when it's trying to look for a substitute for housing to fill the hole in aggregate demand. And also at a time when a lot of companies in developed economies are becoming wary about having uh, a lot of investments in China and are looking to make a transition to other economies, perhaps even move the manufacturing production back home. China wants to become more competitive in order to delay those decisions and having weaker currency is one way to do so. Okay. And then from an equity market perspective, does that leave you still con- constructive on, on China or not? And then also from the perspective of, you know, a lot of people, I think yourselves included, are have kind of an upbeat view on maybe the, the, the longer term outlook for emerging market equities, saying, you know, that th- that is to play in the sense US markets may be overvalued and better value in, in emerging equities. But obviously, Within the index, at least China uh, is is a big uh, chunk of that index. So, what? How do you reconcile, or is there some, is that part of the bullish case for emerging markets, or is it a risk factor? Um, and and then more generally, how do you the, the geopolitical risk about China? You know, only a few months ago, people were saying maybe China's uninvestable, uh, given the, the the trend of disengagement between the US and and China. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, typically emerging market equities do well when A, the dollar weakens, and it has been weakening uh, since October, and B, when the manufacturing cycle starts to improve, which hasn't happened yet. But if it does happen, and my expectation is that the ISM will probably bottom over the next month or two, we're going to see an upswing in global manufacturing. If that occurs, that should be positive for emerging markets, at least over like a 12-month horizon. Now, is that a structural reason to be overweight emerging markets? No. I think the challenge that emerging markets have faced has just been around corporate governance. In the US, the number of shares outstanding typically declines by around 1% every year because companies are always buying back shares, and they're very reluctant to issue new shares. In emerging markets, the number of shares outstanding has grown on average by 5% every year. So there's just a lot more willingness to dilute shareholders in emerging markets. And that means that the sort of strong growth that in many emerging markets have experienced has not filtered down to the level of uh, equity investors. So to be bullish on emerging markets, I think you have to have a view that corporate governance will improve. You have to have a view that the geopolitical situation in China at least isn't going to get any worse, might not get better, but won't deteriorate. On that structural side, I don't have a lot of confidence. I'm hopeful, but the hope isn't (laughs) a recipe for sound investment decisions. I need to see some evidence first. So elsewhere in Asia, you know, 
obviously uh, we've seen a strong run up in in the Japanese equities of late, and and looking at your 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 reports as well, you, you I think I saw somewhere twenty twenty four the year of the yen. Obviously, we've had a big dislocation there, so presumably uh, that's a bullish view on valuation basis, or is it the end of yield curve control or sustainably higher inflation or, or a mix of all those uh, factors going to drive the yen? So, so this year, Japanese stocks have done quite well because they were very cheap and earnings growth and sales growth has actually been reasonably decent in Japan you know, for the first time in a long time. So our models are overweight Japan, they're overweight Europe relative to uh, the, the, the U.S., that's not so much a call on the yen. That's more of a call on Japanese stocks. I think next year the yen could do well for kind of different reasons than money sort of pouring into Japanese equities. Next year, I think, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're probably going to see a renewed weakening in the global economy as the lagged effects of those higher rates finally begin to bite. And you're going to see investors start to price out rate uh, hikes in many economies. And so bond yields are going to start falling as we get closer to the onset of recession. In Japan, of course, bond yields haven't risen very much to begin with. So those interest rate spreads are going to narrow in favor of Japan, which is good for the Japanese yen. Japanese yen is a very cheap currency. It's trading about 40% undervalued relative to purchasing power parity exchange rates. These are the exchange rates that equalize the price of a basket of goods and services across countries. Japan, 40% undervalued. The US, 18% overvalued if you look at the PPP value of the US dollar. So you've got very cheap currency environment where spread differentials are likely to move against favor. That's a recipe for a stronger yen next year. We've talked a lot about these kind of, well, to an extent, the tactical views over, over the next uh, one to two years, but maybe even thinking about what the, the recession and, and then what, what the economy like might look like beyond I mean, do you think we're into a different environment now than we were in the 2010s from, you know, from the perspective of in the next downturn, the next U.S. recession, will rates go all the way back to zero or are we looking at kind of a lower band around 2-3%? And from an inflation perspective, do you think we've had this kind of discussion around is 2% the right level? Do you think that are we going to move into a point where that's actively discussed, you know, that maybe the inflation target should be? 3% and, and that leading to structurally higher inflation in the next decade or, or not? Well, I think the Fed would be very reluctant to change its inflation target. I mean, first of all, it would need congressional approval, which it won't get to do so. But even kind of beyond that, um, if you start saying that, you know, we're going to tolerate 3% inflation going forward, long-term bond yields are going to go up and it's going to actually have a contractionary effect on the economy. So I don't think the Fed would do that, certainly not under uh, J, 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 J Powell. Uh, but that being said, um, you know, there are structural reasons to sort of expect somewhat higher inflation going forward. You mentioned earlier that kind of globalization is on the back foot. That historically was a very deflationary force. Fiscal deficits seem to be structurally higher now, and they're going to remain high as more people retire and start collecting social security and become eligible for Medicare. And those baby boomers who are going to be retiring, by the way, they hold about 52% of household wealth in the US. So they're going to qualify for all these programs. Plus, they've got all these accumulated savings. And when you have a group of workers that all of a sudden stops working, so they're not producing anymore, but they're still consuming because they have all this wealth. Well, if you've got consumption that's not matched by production, that tends to be inflationary as, as well. So I've certainly been in the camp that has argued the neutral rate of interest, A, is not as low as people think, and B, will probably trend higher over time. Okay. And I mean, from a policy, obviously, that's the neutral rate for, for, for the kind of 
sets equilibrium for the real economy. From a policy perspective, do you think the Fed would be reluctant to, or would, would be keen to avoid going back to kind of uh, those ultra low rates to, to, to kind of, or, or, or do you think uh, that, 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 that they may have to in, a, in, a, in another downturn? Well, I think if there's a downturn, the Fed will cut rates, of course. Bond yields will fall. It's a question of you know how much will they fall. In a, in a typical recession, if you kind of look at all the recessions since 1960, uh, the 10-year yield has fallen on average by about two and a half percentage points, peak to trough. So if we get something like that again, 10-year yield could fall to like 1.8%. I would bet against that, however. I think that... Uh, the ten-year yield might fall to around two and a half percent during the next recession, but it's not—it's not, not going to get lower than that. Partly because the recession isn't going to be especially uh, deep. I guess, as, as I said earlier, we don't have major imbalance of homes. We don't have a major imbalance of capex. So those interest rate-sensitive sectors of the economy will kind of spring back to life when the Fed starts cutting rates. But also because I think the neutral rate is rising over time, and so the Fed just will need to bring rates to ultra low levels. We don't have this big deleveraging cycle anymore. You know, During that period, when households were looking to save more, spend less, the Fed needed to keep rates really low just to keep the economy from sinking back into recession. That need is no longer there given that the deleveraging cycle has ended. Okay, fair enough. So I mean, like thinking about the investment strategy on a, on a multi-year basis, it sounds like more muted returns and in, inequities, but not disastrous. And and obviously we have a set, obviously starting bond deals are, uh, are at reasonable levels now. So so, um, but then structurally higher inflation rates will would erode uh, uh, real real returns. I mean, any any other observations to make? You know, the twenty tens was a period of very low growth, low inflation, but strong stock returns. The twenty two thousands was. You know, more muted uh, stock returns, but a strong period of growth. You know, punctuated with crises. How do you see the big picture view over the next decade if you were to try and characterize that? Well, I think you I mean you mentioned earlier the the role of valuations, and valuations are very important when you're thinking about these longer term questions. You know, stocks were super cheap in 2008, uh, and the Schiller P I think came down to close to 10 or so, which is a very very low uh, number. That's not the case anymore. So the valuations are not attractive for equities, or at least not attractive enough to expect above average returns on stocks. For bonds, they have become more attractive. And so my view is and continues to be that while I'm tactically bullish on equities now, I will be looking to reduce that exposure, bump up my exposure to bonds as we get closer to the next recession. The only real wild card in this, and we talked about AI earlier, is you know what happens if we truly do get an AI boom? Could that create such an increase in supply, you know, from all these digital workers that are all of a sudden going to be available to uh, companies that this has a major disinflationary effect and potentially allows bond yields to fall more than I'm expecting? That's certainly a possibility. So you have to be on the watch for that. Very good. Before we wrap up, we always ask our guests if they have any advice or um, suggestions for people who want to build their careers in global macro and in investing. Anything you would suggest doing or reading or things you found useful uh, in the course of your own career? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think uh, if you want to be successful in this field, you have to a be willing to learn a lot about global macro. And it's not easy, <laughs> but it can be done. So pick up a few economics textbooks. There's a lot of free stuff out there, you know, on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. A lot of people are on Twitter. There's some very informed voices out there. Listen to them. Listen to podcasts such as your own because you're going to learn a lot. Uh, and then, you know, get involved in the markets, right? If you have a macro view, you know, don't put a lot of money into it. But, you know, there are a lot of ETFs that are linked to currencies that you can trade. There are ETFs that are linked to bonds, not just stocks. They're trade a little bit, and you'll find that you're going to learn by doing so. And the more you learn, uh, the more successful you'll become at actually making money by trading macro. Good stuff. Well, Peter, this has been a great conversation. Thanks very much for doing this today. 
So make sure to follow Peter's work. As he mentioned, he's on Twitter and you'll find him uh, generally on social media. Because as you can tell from today's conversation, it's a, an interesting global macro environment we're living at the moment. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, thanks for tuning in and we will be back soon with more content. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.